The Akkad and Coco Report, episode 123. Welcome to the Akkad and Coco Report, the podcast dedicated to making sense of healthcare. From policy to economics, from evidence-based medicine to ethics, join us as doctors Michelle Akkad and Anish Coca diagnose and treat the latest epidemic of healthcare absurdities. Okay, well, welcome to this most recent episode of the Akkad and Coco Report. Today, we are lucky enough to have Andrew Althaus. Dr. Althaus is a statistician. Uh, Dr. Althaus um, is, a, is, I guess it's fair to say at this point, he's a Pittsburgh native. He, he, did his, uh, <laughs> he did an undergrad from statistics at Carnegie Mellon, where he played football too, right? You played college football. I did. At college. Yes, I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, then went on to do a master's in applied statistics at the University of Pittsburgh then ultimately went on to do um, uh, get his PhD in epidemiology at the University of Pittsburgh. Um, from there, he has um, uh, been doing a, a, a variety of different uh, uh, tasks and roles, all, relate, all related to supporting clinical trials. He went on to uh, McGee Women's Research, a place where I, I, did, I did some basic science research <laughs> a long, long time ago when I was trying to get into medical school. Uh, he then went on from there to the Heart and Vascular Institute at Pittsburgh, where he was working with interventional cards and CT surgery uh, folks and uh, in, in, in helping support their um, uh, the trials they were doing. And now his most recent role is uh, in general internal medicine, again at Pittsburgh, uh, at the Center for Clinical Trials and Data Coordination, where he's uh, where he helps uh, you know, design his uh, one true love, which is randomized <laughs> control trials. <laughs> so um, we, we're bringing um, uh, Dr. Andrew on because he, he's... A, He's, a, he's obviously immersed in, in the design of trials, um, and he's a wonderful um, explainer uh, of, of, what, <laughs> of what exactly is in that black box, uh, which for many physicians, what, think, what Andrew does um, and what folks like Andrew does is in this kind of black box where you, you give them a bunch of numbers and some, somehow they return with some other <laughs> stuff. And Andrew does a wonderful job. He's like a must follow, I think, on Twitter. He's a, he's a great, uh, he's fantastic at really kind of clarifying and explaining uh, some of the issues and what's going on. And so, um, you know, we, we, the most recent discussion, and I've been talking to Andrew for, I don't know, years at this point on, on Twitter, it feels like, um, but the most recent discussion uh, relates to uh, remdesivir, uh, which is an IV antiviral that's being studied in um, uh, the treatment of patients with COVID. Um, and uh, on Thursday or Friday, there was a release of data suggesting uh, a positive result, and then there was mass consternation. <laughs> uh, the study's not published yet, we must say, um, but I thought it, there was enough, enough buzz about the trial, uh, enough hot takes about it that we could use, <laughs> we could use some of the nuanced views of, of, uh, of Andrew to kind of help us go through uh, some, some of this stuff. So one of the first things that uh, I uh, noticed, and, and many noticed, is that this particular trial of remdesivir, um, which is an IV, again, antiviral, um, is, is what's called an um, adaptive randomized control trial. And I know that's something that I've been learning about slowly <laughs> for, for uh, a few years now. But I thought, you know, Andrew, would you mind kind of going through, you know, what an adaptive randomized controlled trial is, um, how does it differ from a uh, from the usual kind of parallel group randomized controlled trial, what some of the pros and cons are? Yeah, for sure. Um, so first we'll kind of start general and then we'll talk, I guess, a yeah. bit more about the uh, the timely topic of the remdesivir yes. trial and, and, you know, trials in the COVID area. So uh, in, broadly speaking, an adaptive trial is something where you plan uh, the possibility for uh, one or more changes to the trial conduct uh, as it goes on um, in some way typically based a bit on the accruing data. So think about your traditional parallel group randomized trial. So you've got two groups that you want to compare, so maybe placebo and an active treatment. Uh, you design uh, sort of a planned sample size. You say, all right, maybe I'm going to need 1,000 total patients. 500 will get placebo. 500 will get the active treatment. And at the end, I'll uh, compare the outcomes whether that be uh, a hard clinical endpoint like hospitalization or mortality, uh, something like change in blood pressure over the time, obviously depending on the specific nature of the medication and the clinical situation. Uh, The idea of an adaptive trial 
is that you build in uh, sort of some, some potential um, decision points, if you will, where the trial can sort of refine itself based on what's been happening so far. Uh, there's a couple different ways this can happen. One is um, the possibility to change the randomization probabilities uh, to try to tilt the randomization in favor of an arm that appears to be performing better uh, early on. Uh, that can happen in a two-group setting, or it can happen in a multiple-group setting. So maybe you have, say, four or five candidate therapies, or maybe different doses you're studying, uh, and you take an interim look at the data, and you have sort of pre-specified decision rules of if this, then that, that say, okay, maybe from the original uh, equal probability randomization, maybe two patients will be assigned to a therapy for every one assigned to the other therapy if uh, one of them looks uh, a little bit better. Uh, that's a, a complex topic because um, uh, we'll probably talk about this a little bit more uh, as we go, uh, but it's challenging because if you have uh, only two therapies, uh, in some cases you might end up actually needing more patients to run the trial than you would have if you would have just stayed with the one-to-one -one randomization all the way through. So it's got this sort of attraction that it's like, okay, good, we, we start giving more people the thing that looks like it's working better. But if it turns out that you build that in a little bit too early and you respond, I guess, to, sort of more to what's noise than an actual signal, you end up needing more people to show basically the same result that you would have gotten if you would have just plowed ahead sort of with the original one-to-one. -one. So that's why you have to be a bit careful about uh, how much you tilt those probabilities and where you build the, uh, the points in. Um, the second major class that I think is worth covering is something that's called an adaptive enrichment design, where now instead of changing the randomization probabilities for the, the therapy, what you do is you actually change the people who are enrolled in the trial. Uh, I think a good example of something like this, suppose that you had, um, uh, let's talk about a, a, a hot topic, a cardiogenic shock. Suppose you have cardiogenic shock patients and you have Something, I don't know, let's say a mechanical circulatory support device that you believe may improve outcomes in cardiogenic shock patients. But there's sort of an open question of what types of patients might benefit from that or, or might not, you know, because there's always this concern that maybe we're enrolling the wrong patients in the trial and maybe that's why we don't see a benefit. So in adaptive enrichment design, you'd ideally you'd tried to set out sort of some, some subgroups at the beginning of people that you thought maybe were more or less likely to benefit or where you think the treatment benefit might be different. Uh, so suppo suppose you were able to identify five different pathologies of cardiogenic shock and you said, a priori, we're gonna specify that at each interim analysis, we're gonna look at the outcome separately for these groups. And if it looks like there's a strong suggestion of benefit in a group, you could have the potential that that group stops enrolling because you say that there's no longer equipoise in that group. And you say, okay, we've proven benefit of the device in this particular pathology, but we're going to continue enrolling in the other groups. Uh, and then the flip side of that is stopping for futility. So if you have uh, one arm where it looks like the device is performing very poorly or maybe even harmful, you would stop enrolling those patients, but continue enrolling in the groups where it was still sort of equivocal and ideally, that would sort of proceed until you had your answer for each sort of individual group. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. In, in terms of the enrichment stuff, of course, you know, one of the reasons we're, well, uh, I, one of the reasons you're doing adaptive RCTs um, uh, is to, to kind of answer the questions that are going to come on the back end um, if you just did a parallel group RCT, right? Of course, there, there's, there's new questions, of course, that then arise, right? Meaning, so, so what are some, you know, there's obviously, you're always thinking about what people are going to say or how people are going to right. respond to this. So if you have, you know, when you're doing this, when you're doing an enrichment, which makes total sense, by the way, right? I mean, the problem that, that, that I feel like I, I'm constantly talking about is that, you know, if we, we have to be wary about the ethics of these trials because there's a treatment mm -hmm. group and a placebo group and, and, and sometimes the, it's possible that you have, depending on how the trial is rolling out, that the placebo, placebo group's doing a lot worse. Sometimes it's possible the placebo group is doing a lot better, right? So, right. It, I mean, it, it, seems, it seems intuitively that every RCT, <laughs> for that reason, should be an adaptive 
an adaptive design trial to kind of respond to what the data, what, what's happening, the data mm-hmm. out of, out of respect for the people that are enrolled in, in the trial. Yeah. But, but, uh, but of course uh, you run, you run the problem with, you have all these subgroups, you know, then people can say, well, this was a small group. Therefore, if you had, you know, had just, that, just like you're saying, if you had more people enrolled, mm-hmm. uh, then we'd be different. How do you, how does one even, how does one, there's just no perfect answer. How, how do you, how do you get, how do you get <laughs> well, beyond this? So, so I, I know, you know, the famous quote from uh, Stephen Sen. Uh, I know you're a, a bit of a fan of, of Sen's yeah. writing, uh, you know, and talking about trials that, that being a statistician means never having to say you're certain. <laughs> right. uh, so, you know, we deal in, in probabilities and uncertainty and we try as best as we can to try to let you know sort of when the, the probability balance has, has gone so far in one direction that you'd, you'd say, okay, you know, we're, we can never be certain, but we're, but we're 99% sure now, or we're 95% sure now, or whatever that, that level you know, right. is, that there's a, there's a benefit. Right. And as you've right. alluded, when you have a lot of small groups, because you're right, the, the questions, even after positive trials, often right. are like, okay, but, but who really benefits from this? Right. You know, are there certain right. patients that are at risk of harm, even if the therapy overall is beneficial? Right. Uh, and that's, you're right that in some ways, that's kind of what uh, the, the enrichment design sort of try to get at. Can we help? try to figure out if there's a particular type of patient maybe that benefits more or less uh, from a particular therapy or even is, is harmed by a particular therapy. Um, the challenge, and, and I think what you're kind of alluding to or driving towards at the end there is, is, is that the planning of these is really, really tough. You know, how many yeah. people do you actually need to get those strong answers? You know, I, I always joke, you know, statisticians teach a bunch of stuff using examples like coin flips and things that people can relate to. But, you know, if you flip a coin and you get three heads in a row, does that mean the coin is rigged or does that mean that, that it's just natural variation at play? And I think that's some of the challenges. Like we said, you know, if you've got a very deadly disease, you know, maybe say 50% mortality and you try this new thing and three straight people survive, was it, was it your new therapy that saved right. all of them or was that sort of the, the luck of the draw on those three people? Uh, you know, so, so what we try to do uh, in planning an adaptive trial, and we try to do this in any trial, but I think it's even more critical in an adaptive trial, is you try to do a lot of simulations to see how the different design choices that you're, you're putting in um, will perform under different sets of assumptions. So what I mean by that is suppose we have a trial where we know the maximum number of people we can possibly enroll is 1,000, and we're going to build in certain Uh, interim analyses. Maybe I say that after 100 patients and then after 400 patients and then after 800 patients, we're going to look at the interim data and possibly trigger one of these uh, decision rules we've been talking about, like maybe the possibility of an adaptive enrichment to to refine the type of patients we're enrolling. uh, Or maybe we're going to drop a therapy if there's, like I said, if say there's four candidate therapies, maybe after the 100 patients, maybe we'll drop the therapy if there's clear signal that it's performing the worst. Uh, but the important thing for us is to understand sort of, like I'm saying, the, we, we use the phrase operating characteristics a lot, the operating characteristics of the design. How often would we drop a therapy that was actually working? How often would we conclude a therapy was working when it actually is not? You know, so that's what we try to do is we set up these simulations where we, uh, you know, thanks to the power of modern computing, we can simulate data under, drawn from a certain distribution. Like I said, you know, say, okay, we're going to assume every patient has 50% mortality regardless of what therapy they received. Based on the decision rules we put in, how often would we incorrectly say that one of these things was working when it actually wasn't? Or, uh, yeah, go ahead. So how do, you, how, do you, how do you go about doing that? Like, for instance, whether it be... But just to summarize really briefly, uh, because you, you said a lot. Of, so when you're talking about adaptive RCTs, you know, you're talking about adaptive enrichment trials, uh, mm-hmm. at least two basic things that you've outlined is adaptive enrichment, tri- adaptive enrichment trials, which, which essentially uh, uh, look to um, preferentially enroll different groups of patients that you kind of pre-specified, right? And then right. as, as yeah. the trial goes on and as data starts coming out, you're able to keep, you, you know, you have certain markers that you look back and say, all right, in this group, how are things doing? And if, yeah. if one of the groups is like vastly off, you know, you then make a decision about, well, should we keep enrolling in that particular group? 
and that, or, or not. So that's the adaptive enrichment that you talked about. The other, the other thing you've talked about is the, um, uh, the, uh, uh, this play the winner or drop the loser. Is that, is, yeah. what is that? Is that called an adaptive, yeah. just, is that right. adaptive outcome or adaptive randomization? What, what, do you, what do you call that? Yeah. So maybe the way to think of this is that you've got trials that are adaptive sort of on the therapy side, like you yes. change the actual therapies, either whether right. that be the probabilities or even the right. therapies that you're considering right. uh, and then adaptive on the patient side. Maybe those are sort of the two broad right. categories I should have described it as. Uh, and you're right. The, so the original forerunner, and I know you, you, you know this right. about this ECMO trial, yes. uh, sort of one of the very first adaptive trials was this idea of the, of the play the winner design. Today, we tend to use sort of, of modified variants of, of that. Um, and maybe we should briefly talk about the, the ECMO trial, yeah. sort of no, segue I, into that if you absolutely. want Absolutely. That, that um, was one of the first, that was one of the first yeah. times I read about it. And, and just to give a little bit of context to what Andrew's gonna, gonna say about that is that, you know, you had a Michigan, um, a Michigan surgeon named John Bartell, uh, Bartlett, Bartlett? Bar, I'm forgetting, I think it's John Bartlett. Um, and he basically had, uh, was dealing with kids that had congenital diaphragmatic hernia and, and there was a significant mortality scene. There's some debate about what exactly mortality is, but based on what him and a couple other series were saying, that mortality for these folks who had congenital diaphragmatic hernia uh, was, was 80%. Was 80%. Uh, basically what happens is you have a hole in part of your diaphragm and you herniate um, components of your, uh, you know, your intestinal tract into the, the chest cavity the lungs don't develop, the pathophysiology is a little complicated, but mm -hmm. basically, basically it ultimately results in inadequate gas exchange to support, you know, the normal child from developing. And ultimately, you know, 80% of the time, the feeling was these folks, uh, you know, a lot of these poor children uh, would die as a result of it. And the idea that John, John Bartlett has is that, look, all I had to do is support these, these kids, um, uh, uh, support the oxygenation. And so why can't I do something to uh, uh, do what the lungs are doing for these children, repair the, repair the defect that they have. And once that defect is repaired, then uh, and I've supported them for a long enough time in terms of oxygenation, we're, we're doing okay. So he created, you know, he essentially created a circuit where, where blood from the child would be taken out, uh, out via, via a, a, a cannula into a machine that would oxygenate the blood and then return it to, to the patient. And in his initial case series, you know, he had some very, very promising results. Um, he then, of course, you know, uh, in order to convince the, the wider public that this is what, this is, this is what, this was a reasonable therapy that should undergo widespread adoption. You know, it's a pretty big deal putting catheters in, into these small children and stuff. He had, you know, had to design a, design a randomized control trial. The only issue was, of course, is that, you know, ethically, he felt that he, he didn't want to do a one-to-one -one randomization because he felt so strongly that, I mean, that people that were going to be randomized to the control group, you know, he, his group at least, uh, felt that, you know, he couldn't do that. So they designed an adaptive randomized control trial that, 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 that basically um, randomized patients based on the prior successor failure. Uh, so go ahead, Andrew, tell us. What yeah. And if, if, if I remember correctly and, and you're, you're even more immersed in this, so you please correct me if I get something wrong, but if I remember correctly, it was like the first patient was assigned to the control group and died. The next patient then, so they, since they use the, the play the winner or drop the loser design, the next patient got the active treatment and lived. And then I actually think that, I think it was what, like 11 straight got the active treatment and lived. And then he stopped the trial. Uh, you know, under the conclusion that that was sufficient evidence that, that the therapy worked. Now, I understand that that is a particularly uh, extreme case of, of a condition with such high mortality that basically if you, if you had 10 straight people live getting that, you know that there's no way that would have happened with, uh, without that, that intervention. Um, so, uh, you know, I know that that's a very difficult situation, but it's a good example of this idea where the, the, the historical idea of the play the winner design, the, the, the challenge with something like that, and I think you've, you've written obviously about this, so you'll be able to pick up the history a little bit better from here, but I think the, the reason people had a hard time with that is since literally I think only one patient ended up in the, the control group of that trial, if I remember correctly, you, you yep. basically said that people didn't believe it, so he right. had to do another trial after that. Right, right. 
so what I think the one of the lessons from that is that using a strict play the winner or or drop the loser, where you go all the way to the level of we're just going to do the next one will just be what based on the last one's outcome um, has that potential to drive you into this weird place where it's like, all right, we've got literally only one patient ended up in the control group. Do we really believe this result? Um, so they, what they've done since then is they use sort of a, a modified version where rather than totally playing the winner or totally dropping the loser, you just adjust the randomization probability uh, sort of to preferentially assign more to therapies that seem to be performing better, but while still preserving the randomization component that um, allows you to make sort of a stronger causal inference and hopefully you end up with enough data accrued and you avoid that sort of extreme case. I understand, again, I, I, I get that yeah. with something like 80% mortality, talking about a randomized trial at all I know is its, its own fraught ethical challenge. Um, yeah. That's not, I think, the topic. To, right. To totally right. right, 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 right. Absolutely, absolutely. It's the idea of, the, of what the original play the winner design was and how we've kind of modified it today. So based on the interim data, you, you, you play more of the winner, but you don't make it just based on, okay, last patient died getting control therapy, next patient gets active right. therapy or vice versa. Right, you know? right, right. The first patient was randomly assigned to ECMO and survived. The next That's random right. assignment was to conventional treatment. The patient died. The third patient okay. assigned to ECMO then survived. And now after that happened, you know, it was basically, you know, you had a two out of three chance of, okay. of, of either going, two out of three chance of going to ECMO and a one out of three chance going to control. That next patient then ended up in the ECMO arm, also survived. So now, now you had, you know, progressively mm -hmm. higher and higher odds right. that the next patient would go to um, to uh, 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 the ECMO arm, and it ended up, as you're saying, you know, there's only one patient that was in the in the control arm, yeah. and so when he published this trial, uh, exactly like you're saying, no, no, people said, well, what the heck? There's only one patient. How can we say anything about it? Yeah. And and they had to run more trials. Of course, now it is it it is stand, it is uh, kind of uh, standard. Yeah. It's interesting in that case that you have to wait for the outcome to happen, right? <laughs> yeah. So that's actually an important. That's that's a great point. You know, right. we're trying to you know make this sort of educational about adaptive trials. Uh, obviously, a key is that if you want the trial to be able to adapt, you need to be able to observe the outcomes quickly enough to trigger an adaptive rule. You know, if you have to wait five years to observe everybody's outcome. By the time you could adapt the trial, the trial is done and rolling anyway. Right, so, right. so that's obviously a key point is that, this, that an adaptive trial is typically better suited for things that are generally, I guess what I'd call more of an acute setting. Something like you, you, you either it's like an ICU type trial where the, you use an outcome that's like mortality within say 14 days or 28 days. Um, or um, I've seen it used in cancer if they're doing something like tumor response basically right. within like a fairly short time frame. But yeah, generally this, this works better when you have outcomes that can be observed in a fairly short time frame so the adaptations can happen quickly enough for them to, to, to bother doing, basically. Right. right. So anyway, it's, and it's not, this is the, the very long-winded question, you know, but uh, <laughs> yeah. th this, is, this is what I was getting at was it's obviously not some clinician who's like, well, my gestalt is one group is doing better <laughs> yeah. than the other. Well, so what, what, how, do you, how do you statisticians decide how big the group must be, how different they are. Is like, what, what, what is the stuff that you decide in terms of stop? What are yeah. some considerations, I should say? Yeah, as I say, certainly it's not just us making the decision. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's not just us working in, in concert right. with, you know, the, right. the clinical experts and right. the trialists to, to make sure that we have a design that, that we think fills the, the objectives as best as possible. Um, but I mean, it's basically just a bunch of different probability calculations and, and simulations. You know, we try to get uh, you know, so sort of like what you were alluding, we try to get what's our best estimate of the response rate or the mortality rate or whatever the outcome might be, uh, you know, in, in this disease in general or in, the, in whatever we think the control arm is going to be. Um, and then we try to say, okay, what types of effect sizes would we consider, uh, you know, clinically meaningful or, or relevant? Um, and then uh, kind of as I was alluding, we do some, some simulations. So suppose um, I'm going to make myself look silly because I'm just going to try to wing it, you know, but suppose we've got four candidate therapies that you want to consider. And like I said, we, we think that we can enroll, um, 
a thousand patients total in our trial. That would be our max. You know, that's our ceiling is we'll be able okay. to enroll a thousand patients. Yeah. Uh, and you tell me, you know, I want to, uh, you know, I want to have some interim looks where we have the possibility to drop one of these therapies if we think it's performing poorly. And we, you know, we want to, you know, make sure we're able to focus the rest of the trial studying the things that seem to have a better chance. And I mean, there's both, there's sort of a, um, uh, a benefit for the people in the trial, I guess, and that they're more likely to hopefully get something that, that's, that's performing better. And there's also sort of a resource allocation type thing where, uh, you know, if you're the, the company running the trial or the sponsor running the trial, be it, maybe it's a government funded trial, you're spending your, your, your dollars with a better probability of getting answers about therapies that actually work. You know, you don't keep enrolling people on something where you're basically, think about poker, you know, drawing to a dead hand or something like that. You know, if we already have enough data to know that something doesn't work, then we can spend the rest of our resources on, on things that, that are maybe more promising. So, uh, you know, you, you kind of ask, how do, we, how do we decide that? I mean, it's kind of a combination of, of logistics, you know, when can we have the interim looks? Who's going to see the data to make those decisions? You know, who's, who's on the data, data monitoring committee, the data and safety monitoring board? How are we able to, to have them meet and review the data? Um, kind of as you're alluding also, things like when will the outcomes be observed? How quickly do we expect to enroll people? Uh, you know, so if I start enrollment today on, on May 4th or May 3rd, whatever day it is, 2020, uh, you know, when will I have 100 patients outcomes observed? When will I have 400 patients outcomes observed? You know, best, best guesses, of course. These are always, always imperfect guesses. We never know this stuff uh, for certain. But we, we take our, our best estimates and we try to simulate these different scenarios. Uh, so we, and, and like I said, I mentioned operating characteristics earlier. So this is where that comes back in. We try to say under different sets of assumptions, you know, so if the therapy has a 10% benefit, if the therapy has a 20% benefit, if the therapy has a 30% benefit, you know, whatever, whatever it is, how often do we conclude that the therapy actually works? And how often does that happen at each of those decision points? You know, so if I say I'm going to have a thousand is my ceiling, I might have an interim look at 100 patients, another one at 400 patients, and another one at 800 patients. Um, and maybe my decision rules are going to be that I'm going to drop one of my candidate therapies if it's performing below a certain threshold um, at, at one of those interim looks. Like I said, how we evaluate the design is how often we would get the right answer using the decision rules that we've set up. Um, so the does that key, make sense? Yeah, yeah, so the key seems to really be um, but pre-specifying all this stuff, right? So to kind of avoid yeah. the look that you're kind of making decisions as the data is coming out, which you are, but as long as you've pre-specified all this stuff that you've thought about this before, uh, that, that, that seems to be one of the keys to, to kind of doing this. And, you know, as you're saying, so the, based on your expected differences in mortality, et cetera, that's yeah. how you kind of help decide, okay, this is, you know, help, help, help make these decisions during the, during the trial. So the major disadvantages of the adaptive design seems to be one, it's not well understood by a lot of people, so that automatically generates suspicion. Would you would you agree? <laughs> yeah, that's that's definitely one one concern is that you know there seems to be an inherent right. suspicion of them. Right, and two, just the ECMO example is an extreme example, of course, is that you could potentially limit the numbers in each little limit the numbers in the treatment groups or the control groups to to a degree that uh, again makes some people wonder. Well was this a real answer or not? Is that, would you agree with that or? Well, so there's, so there's that. I think another, another disadvantage that's, that's related mm -hmm. to that one is that um, depending on the, the rules that you set up, sometimes they don't actually perform better, if that makes mm. sense. Like, you know, I think there's sort of this assumption that, oh, an adaptive trial must be better than a traditional parallel group trial. And depending on um, how many how many candidate treatments you have and when your interim looks are scheduled like i said sometimes you can show in aggregate that you'd actually need more patients or right. that you would actually be less likely to get the correct answer or or something like that you know so that's right. that's why that's one of the other things that's why like i say the, the careful planning and the pre-specification that you alluded to is so important you have to you have to really look at very hard at the adaptive design that you set out and scrutinize it and make sure that under all range of different scenarios that it would perform well. 
you know, that it would perform better than saying, I'm just going to randomize people to my two groups and recruit a thousand people. And, you know, like, because there has to be some advantage, right? It has to be that you can get the answer faster or right. you can get it with fewer people or that you get, you're more likely to be right. You know, like it has to win on one of those things to be worth doing. Right, 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 right. Can, can adaptive RCTs be gamed by trialists to bias towards a positive result? Meaning the, the charge is sometimes made that, well, what the heck, you, you can just pre-specify 12 different things before and different <laughs> looks. And you can, you can say that, you know, we will change based on, you know, X, Y, and Z that may or may not be relevant, but hey, it's biased towards getting a positive trial result. So can you design adaptive RCTs to get you a positive result? So, I mean, that's a great question because you're definitely right. That's one of the, the points of concern that I think we see when we, when we tend to discuss these, you know, in, in public forums, uh, you know, there often are, are people who, who seem to think that they must be some sort of trick to, to make it easier to get a positive result. What I would say is that I don't think they're actually, if they're, it depends on, on how carefully it's scrutinized, whether that be by the, the regulatory agency who's sort of in charge of oversight um, or if there's no regulatory agency, you know, the, then unfortunately that probably falls to the, the IRB or the journal editors uh, to pick up on it. Um, if you assume that everyone is, is acting above board, I would say that they're not really any easier to game than, than a traditional RCT. It's very hard to make it look like something works that actually doesn't work. Um, you know, unless you, uh, th that's the whole concern is, oh, what's well, a way to lower the bar? Ideally, uh, and this is where, where I, I, you know, I keep talking about simulations. I'm sorry that I keep bringing that up, but that's where, where a lot of this hinges on. Um, uh, so the one, one, one adaptive trial that I, that I have been working on, on designing lately, I have to show by simulation that I am not any more likely to conclude that the therapy works if it doesn't than I would be sort of with a traditional trial design. So what that means is I have to write the code that simulates my trial and I have to run a very large number of them, like run like 100,000 simulations and show that, you know, I think you're, you're familiar and certainly most people would be familiar with the 5% alpha level, the P less than 0.05, 5% type one error, which we're all common, commonly associated with in, in clinical trials. I have to show that whatever my adaptive design is, I still don't conclude that an ineffective therapy works more than 5% of the time. Does that make sense? Yep. Yep. No, absolutely. Now, absolutely the concern does. that you have about is it easier to game, I guess there's, there's a valid concern in the sense that just since there's more stuff that goes into this, uh, it, it can be harder to follow. It can be harder to make that judgment. You know, there's a lot more complicated statistical programming and decision rules, whereas uh, a straightforward parallel group design, I guess it would be easier to spot if the design was clearly gamed, whereas in an adaptive trial, you'd, you'd have to have a fairly high degree of technical sort of proficiency and expertise to spot, uh, you know, that it was that it was gamed in a way. Does that make sense? Yep. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, the do you see um, uh, the, uh, the 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 latest you know uh, remdesivir trial uh, that's you yeah. know, in collaboration with the NIAID, uh, which is which Dr. Fauci, who's we should mention, is a virologist. Uh, mm. Dr. Fauci, uh, uh, it, it's a very impressive career, um, but he basically was somebody who was was really had some breakthrough breakthroughs that uh, changed the game for uh, changed the game for uh, folks in the. Um, uh, who had who had uh, autoimmune disorders like lupus and whatnot, and so he he kind of when AIDS came out and the HIV AIDS came out in the early 1980s, he he can he changed his lab to just focus on antivirals, and he's kind of been just focused on uh, antivirals, and it's been an interest of his since the early 19 1980s. Um, he's head of the NIAID, which is a um, you know infectious disease component of the NIH. And he specifically has um, uh, was the gentleman who uh, you know kind of released the uh, some of the results um, uh, at some point. Now, so it's it's fair. It seems reasonably certain that he helped design 
designed the trial um, or, or had some hand or had some <laughs> sign off or something like that. Can you, can you speak to the design uh, of the trial based on what we know from the clinicaltrials.gov site? So I've been trying to, to find some information on this, and I will admit that um, you know, it's not been my, my all-consuming passion yeah. over the last couple of days, so I can't <laughs> promise that, there is, there, that there's some stone that I didn't turn over looking for it. Um, I have found a little bit more information uh, you know, about the, the adaptive nature, because without, um, uh, without like a published trial protocol or, 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 or a paper, you know, we're kind of guessing based on the snippets of information right. that, that we can glean be that from clinicaltrials.gov or just, you know, articles on Wired or whatever, wherever we happen right, to be. Thinking. Right. Um, I think the adaptive component of this trial, if I've understood it correctly, uh, is that um, they clearly have some sort of interim analysis strategy to examine efficacy. And the other piece of it that it looks like is it looks like they're going to keep the trial framework open and they're gonna start adding um, additional candidate therapies. So I mean, the, the big result that everybody's been bubbling about, I think was remdesivir versus placebo or standard of care. I forget if it was, uh, if it was actually placebo controlled or if it was open label. I think it was placebo controlled. Um, yes, it, yeah, it says, uh, just, from, okay. just reading from their site, it says the study is an adaptive, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial. Okay, so the, what, um, it was placebo-controlled. Yeah. My, my understanding from what I've seen a bit more recently is that, uh, so they, they basically, uh, in a trial like this, uh, they, they stop randomizing to remdesivir versus placebo. They've concluded at this point, we can discuss these results a bit more if you want, but they've concluded that remdesivir has a sufficiently high threshold of efficacy uh, or of, of evidence supporting efficacy that they no longer consider it appropriate to randomize to remdesivir versus placebo. What my understanding is uh, in the adaptive nature of this is that they can now basically convert it to test something else against remdesivir or uh, maybe an additive therapy. So if there's another thing, and obviously this is a little bit out over my skis here, you know, in the actual candidate therapies there might be, but suppose there's another thing that you might try you could randomize to remdesivir or remdesivir plus that other thing. And it still uses the data from uh, the earlier part of the trial. You know, one of the, the challenges I think you know about RCTs is that, you know, they take all this time to set up. You, you know, it takes a long time to get ethical approvals. Um, it takes a long time to get sites up and running. So when you have to run a bunch of separate trials, obviously that's additional sort of time and resources you spend. With something like this, if you have another candidate therapy, you don't just throw away that whole framework that already was in place. It's the same trial, it's the same sites, it's the same data collection, uh, but now you're enrolling and you're randomizing to say remdesivir or remdesivir plus. Um, and depending on the specific structure of it, you can even keep the remdesivir patients from the first part of the trial in the analysis so you gain efficiency that way. You don't need maybe another 1,000 patients. Maybe you only need another 600 patients because you can keep the data from the first part of the trial and use that to try to make the conclusion of whether remdesivir plus beats uh, remdesivir alone. Um, again, that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going a little bit on some guesswork since I don't have the, the full trial protocol or anything, but those are some of the things that they might be, might be doing in this trial. So, so, right. So it seems like the adaptive part from the, some of the comments from the last couple of days from some people who are in the know is, is, is really the fact that if we found something to be a benefit, you kind of have these pre-planned places where you can then say, okay, now the control arm will be remdesivir. Right. right. And, and the, the therapy arm will be remdesivir plus whatever. Yeah. Um, so, so that seems the adaptive, at least for now, seems the adaptive part of it. Is there, um, is there a reason there's a lot of talk about outcomes, uh, how the outcome, the primary outcome was changed. Um, are there valid reasons for outcome changes? Yeah, obviously that's been a hugely controversial uh, discussion over the last couple of days. This, this, uh, this people have noticed that the, the primary outcome was changed. And of course the timing makes everyone suspicious. So I'll say I, I'm, I'm going to act under the assumption that everything is above board. I'm not going to go there, but I will talk about the, the potentially valid reasons right. for, yeah. for modifying an outcome. So um, it, here, for example, uh, this is obviously a disease that's, that's 
new to us. You know, it's not like this has been around for years and we have a good idea of the natural history. We've got trials that are up and running, you know, months after we first began to experience this. So what might, uh, what, what seems to have happened here, at least one of the points of discussion, is that I think the original primary outcome was supposed to be assessed 14 days after enrollment into the trial. And uh, it seemed like, you know, in the month or two between designing the trial and uh, starting to look at the interim data, um, obviously this isn't the only place this is happening in the world. There's other data coming out of China and other places where we're starting to understand more about the natural course of the disease. And it sounds like there was reason to believe that some people would continue to recover after 14 days and meet that eventual sort of recovery endpoint. So they decided to change the timing of the outcome assessment from 14 days to 28 days, uh, because that obviously would have a statistical advantage if people are continuing to recover, um, then you're more likely to pick up on a true benefit of the disease if you're using sort of all of the recovery events that are actually occurring instead of only using the ones that occur in the first 14 days. Of course, what makes people suspicious is they're like, well, they must have been peeking at the data and seen that it looked better with one than the other. So that's sort of the, the, the critical thing about having a primary outcome change that, that is valid and that doesn't undermine sort of the integrity is that this decision should be made uh, not based on knowledge of the study results, but based on sort of um, uh, what I'd consider sort of scientific and clinical grounds. So if new information becomes available during the trial and you say, you know, we actually think this definition of the endpoint makes more sense for the trial than the definition that we had when we started the trial. And in a rapidly changing situation like this, that, that certainly seems like it can happen. Um, you make the decision to change the endpoint, but you should not do it because it's like, well, we took a look at the data and it looks like the treatment looks better if we use it at this point than at this point, because then you are kind of compromising the integrity of the trial. So the key is make that decision based on, on scientific or, or clinical grounds, but not based on the data that you've actually seen. Um, there's one way that you can bring data into this that can make sense. And this is actually another case of a, a sort of adaptive trial that, that I, I should discuss at least briefly here. Um, so, you know, one of, as we've discussed, one of the things that's tricky when you're designing a trial is you make some, some guesses about uh, uh, the endpoints, how many people are going to die or how many people are going to recover. Um, and based on that, we take our sort of best guess at what's a reasonable sample size to use for the trial that sort of strikes that, that balance of having a good chance to show that the therapy works if it actually works, but also not enrolling so many people that, that, that it's unethical to be enrolling them long after we'd have an answer. One thing that, that can be a bit uh, uh, tricky there, so suppose that we were off in our guess. We guessed when we designed the trial that 20% of people would die. And uh, it, as it turns out, we were wrong, and only 10% of people that enroll in the trial are going to die because we've got hospitals that are performing the best supportive care, and they're doing a great job, and they've actually been able to reduce that mortality from 20% to about 10% just, just by offering you know, really best practices care or whatever that might be. The concern then is that we don't, we might no longer sort of have that, that, that a large enough sample size to catch maybe that small additional incremental benefit of the experimental therapy that we're treating or that we're testing. So one, one way that you can do this is you can have an interim analysis where you look at the, uh, the mortality rate or, or the incidence of the outcome, but you look at it in the overall study sample. So you don't look at the data comparing treatment A versus treatment B or placebo versus uh, uh, the active therapy. You just look overall. And if the event rate is much lower than you expected, you might choose to increase the sample size to try to make sure that your trial ends up being big enough to detect a signal if one actually exists. Or conversely, if the event rate is much higher than expected, you might even reduce the sample size because you know that Maybe we plan to enroll 1,000 patients, but based on the data that you've accrued so far, you're like, oh, by 800, we're going to have an answer. We don't need to go all the way to 1,000. Uh, so that's another class of adaptive trial that can happen. And that's the one case where you can look some at, you look at the data, but you don't look at the data comparing each, the right. two treatment arms. Yeah. Right, right, right. No, that, that's great. So um, are, the other, so the other change well, the other thing that's at least discussed is the change in um, 
uh, how many different, well, let me, let me, that seems like a harder thing to, to, to know, <laughs> to, to know, given that the trial isn't out yet. So I won't, I won't put you in that position, but, but what, what if people that say that, um, we should, they should not have, um, stopped this trial early, um, or, uh, uh, because, uh, we didn't have a, uh, different scene in mortality. So, in the current trial, just to review, uh, there was you know the time to recovery, and I think it was 11 days versus 14 days or something like that. It was three days difference with a p-value that was super super significant, suggesting um, well whatever that suggests. <laughs> but yeah. and then there was a trend seen towards mortality, a mortality benefit. Also, um, uh, some 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 said that you know why did they do that? They should just wait it until there was a mortality benefit. Now again, I'm asking just generally, is there a valid reason to to do that yeah so there's a couple of good i'm glad you brought that up because there's a couple of good things to discuss here some good good meat on that bone um yeah so so as you alluded they had a very strong suggestion of uh shortening that time to recovery endpoint. um in the specific setting of of covid uh, you know i was interested because depending on on which uh clinician is is offering their comment you've seen a variety of reactions to this my impression was that in this situation, uh, with the potential for um, uh, in hard hit areas, maybe for hospitals to be sort of reaching the limit of their capacity, I thought that this seemed like a setting where an outcome like like faster recovery um, would be ex 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 especially valuable. I mean, sometimes people people are skeptical of outcomes like that because they say they're not as hard of an endpoint as mortality. Um, but, but, you know, when you consider there's sort of a, a potential broader effect of freeing up ICU beds faster in, in hard hit areas and things, I, I thought people would have liked the, the recovery outcome a little bit uh, better than they have. Um, so with that said, uh, even putting that aside, there's sort of the statistical question about you had a really strong signal on the, the time to recovery outcome and sort of this borderline significant uh, result for mortality, which uh, I'm also amused that apparently a 3% mortality result, depending on who you're talking to, is either too big to be believed or it's not big enough to warrant using, which really <laughs> amazes me that, that like the opinions range that much sort of, uh, you know, depending on who's, yeah, it's, who's heads, reading it. Uh, right. Heads, heads, I would heads you, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, so you're right. this is one of the, the biggest challenges that I think any data monitoring committee faces in the conduct of a trial is when is, when is the signal enough to warrant stopping the trial? Um, because you've got a, a hard win on that time to recovery endpoint. And like you said, there sort of this um, suggestive, if you will, you, you know, benefit of mortality, even if not, not definitive or conclusive at this time. And, uh, you know, I don't envy anyone making that decision because if you, if you stop now, you say, look, the, the sort of, the, it's almost like you're saying the balance of probability right now lies with benefit. You're saying it's more likely to be beneficial than harmful at that time, at, at this time. And um, if you continue enrolling, you're saying we're not, we're not convinced enough yet. And uh, that could be another, another month, another two months um, where you're both exposing patients in the trial to receive placebo instead of remdesivir. Um, and, uh, you know, you're delaying sort of the potential availability of the therapy that, uh, that extra month or two um, to people outside the trial. And I mean, I know, I know that's a whole podcast of its own to talk about sort of the ethics of trials and, you know, is your responsibility yeah. to the patient in the trial versus outside the trial and everything like that. That's, that's tricky. But yeah, it's, 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 it's a hard, definitely a hard decision. Do you say, you know what, the mortality signal isn't quite there yet, so we want to wait and see. We, we need to see more data to be convinced. It, it, it's, it's tough. You know, and this is another, another, another challenging topic is, is should the rules be different in pandemic times versus normal times? And I know, you know, we're not talking about a Me Too hypertension medication here. You know, we're not, we're not talking about another lipid-lowering medication. You know, we're talking about something where right now there's no, no available therapy. And uh, I know that certainly is another factor, I think, that plays into the ethics of, of whether you stop a trial uh, or not, you, you know, because um, some of the, the other fascinating stuff that, that uh, Stephen Sen has written sort of around the topic of, of equipoise in randomized trials, and I know this is a fascination of yours, is um, if you've got 
something available that, that works for a particular condition. And the floor for what everybody gets is that. You know, it, it's a little bit easier, I think, to square yourself with the idea of RCTs to, to try to test effective therapies. So, you know, the worst thing that anybody's getting is, is the effective thing we already have. Right. When there's nothing effective, I think that, that for people it feels, whether this is right or wrong, it feels like maybe that threshold for, for that burden of proof or stopping might be a bit lower. And that's definitely a tricky, that, tricky yeah. grounds to be on. So, so, so well said. I think, I think that uh, equipoise, as we're seeing, is so incredibly fragile when yeah. it comes to a novel, a novel disease that's deadly that um, doesn't have a therapy. Because then, you know, it's, it's like the president, you know, runs around saying all the time. It's like, well, what do we have to lose? I mean, there's obviously <laughs> lots of stuff to lose, but, but you know, you, you really feel, you really feel, um, uh, you know, you're like you're in a tough spot. And so, so yeah, I mean, uh, that's a great point that you bring up that, that having something that you have that has some effect at the very least makes you feel a little better about doing, uh, doing, doing, doing these things further. So, so just, just, just to be clear, you're saying that everything that you know so far, the change in endpoints, um, the, uh, uh, you know, the, the design of the trial from what we, from what we know, it, this doesn't, nothing we've, that's come up so far automatically means that we should discredit the outcome or think there's, there's some type of conspiracy afoot. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, and, and look, I, I understand why some people have the feeling that I'm about to describe, but I think that based on what is, is publicly available, you, you, to, to, conclude that the results are not valid, you're making an assumption that someone is lying. You're basically saying that I don't believe, because uh, NIAID put out uh, something where they discussed the endpoint change. Um, and they explained uh, some of the rationale that we were discussing earlier. They said that, you know, after we designed the trial, uh, as, as we got more reports about sort of the typical duration of recovery for these patients, uh, you, you know, we ran some more simulations and we decided it'd be better to assess the outcome at 28 days versus 14 days. Um, yeah, that was their official explanation. And if right. you, if, if you're saying that, like, I think that this is all a pharma conspiracy, you, you're, you're basically saying that they're lying. Right. Like that, 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 uh, that's my, my, my opinion from what I've seen so far is that, and that's not to say that that can't right. happen. There's right. reasons that people don't trust big pharma, you know, but, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. but, 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 and you're assuming that they're lying. Yeah, absolutely. No, right. It's, it, it, right. So it, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's basically, this was a decision that was driven by the NIAID, uh, you know, and, and that's what their statement is that the statisticians perform modeling of what happens if the right day is not picked for assessment that revealed that meaningful treatment effects could be missed with that primary endpoint. I, I mean, I think it, it's incredibly important to realize that at the end, uh, uh, you know, at the, the, the end point here is patients that are in the trial. And that's who we need to be thinking about all the time. So Yes, it'd be great to have the, the greatest data uh, in the world to convince, you know, everyone sitting in uh, armchairs around around the country tweeting. <laughs> but but you know, you I mean, these folks have a tremendous heavy responsibility to folks yeah. that are currently in hospitals struggling mm -hmm. uh, with COVID, and you know, so it, it's it's certainly super super hard uh, to, to to do this, and and and, uh, and you know, and I clearly. A lot of the comments from folks that are working in that say in that in related places, uh, sorry, in, in, to in institutions that are related, uh, are seeming to say that you know there there's a lot of thought that is going into this from the NIH standpoint. But I guess we'll know more once the trials ultimately comes out. Should should clinicaltrials.gov have a more detailed description of the methods? I don't know if you've had a chance to go through what they have there. Is that is that is that reasonable what they have, which is basically inclusion criteria, exclusion criteria, outcomes, and, you know, the basic rationale. Do yeah. Anything yeah. That, so, so that's an interesting question. And I, I mean, I'll try not to go on too long about this topic, but, you know, we want your listeners to make it all the way to the end. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, it's interesting because um, you think about sort of the historical uh, rationale behind clinicaltrials.gov, right? It was to try to make sure that all of these trials were, were registered publicly to prevent sort of the possibility of, of non-reporting, you know, to prevent the idea that a company could run 10 trials and just submit the two where the drug looked good and, and get a label for a drug. So I think sort of that was the historical rationale behind, behind clinicaltrials.gov. Uh, a secondary benefit of that, of course, is that 
even if the results were not um, available in peer-reviewed journals, they were, they were available somewhere publicly, right? You know, you had information about the trial that was available publicly, but how much information is enough information? And I think it depends a little bit. One of the things that you're alluding to here is who, who is the consumer uh, on clinicaltrials.gov? Who are you trying to, uh, uh, you know, who are you trying to give information to, to with that? Because I think, as you're right, in a situation like this, people get this little snippet of information about the remdesivir trial, and there's no paper out yet, and everybody just goes to clinicaltrials.gov because it's like, well, well, maybe there's more information there. We're hoping that maybe, because we have all these questions, you know? And um, so I think that there's some valid discussions to say, okay, well, you know, there should be more information there. The full trial protocol should be on clinicaltrials.gov. Everything everything that's ever been written about the trial should be on clinicaltrials.gov. And, and I have some sympathy for that view. Um, the, the counterpoint to that, if I try to kind of play both sides here and at least present it, is um, that obviously, and I don't have to tell you about, you know, onerous administrative tasks, uh, <laughs> but it can feel like it's another onerous administrative task. You know, I have some, some sympathy. Fortunately, I'm the trial statistician. I never sit in the PI's chair, but I've seen <laughs> the principal investigators of these trials, you know, it's, it's another thing they have to do. It's another, it feels sometimes like another, another barrier. I mean, I'm not going to out some of my um, uh, Twitter <laughs> friends who have told me their, their difficult stories, though, about trying to do this. These are people who are good researchers who are working hard, and they say it was, it was really hard, even with the existing framework, to try to get all of the information that I was supposed to get into clinicaltrials.gov into it. Um, so I have heard from some people that, uh, that, that it's, it's not the most sort of user-friendly thing to try to put stuff there and update. Um, so I think that's sort of the other side of it is that I think that, that, that it's not the easiest thing to get the latest thing up there. And I guess one other point that I think is worth discussing here because people have looked a lot at the timing of the endpoint change and they're like, oh, it, it changed on this date. And it's like, no, that's the date that it was logged on clinicaltrials.gov. Right. <laughs> like, right, right. You, you don't actually know when that decision was made because like, look, we're all people and we all have, have jobs. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not like the person left the meeting where they made the decision and the first thing they wanted to do was go update clinicaltrials.gov. Like, <laughs> so, so I think that's another challenge is, is that, that, you know, I think more, more, of course, it's easy to just say more information there would be good because we'd have more transparency. And I think that that's a, a valid point. I, I just do think that the people uh, who, who make that argument at least need to be understanding that, um, that that's not that easy to do. You know, it's like you say, and I think you could just say, it's fair to probably say, look, whenever the protocol was amended, the updated protocol should be on clinicaltrials.gov. And I think I'm, I think I'm fine with with that. The, the challenge is then you're expecting people to read the whole protocol instead of typing everything into the structured fields. You know, it would be relatively easy, I guess, if you just said the rules are simple. You don't have to type anything into these structured fields. Just upload your protocol. But the extra work, like I said, sort of the extra onerous administrative task is, all right, I've got my whole protocol. I uploaded that. Now I need to fill in all this other stuff. <laughs> So anyways, Andrew, this is, this has been really awesome. I have one other burning question for you. Okay. <laughs> I want your analysis of the recent, uh, uh, record that was broken by the Swedish, he's Swedish, right? Or, or what Icelandic. is he? Swedish? Icelandic. Icelandic. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, I, I saw those videos. It, I mean, he does not look human. He looks like, I mean, no, I, he's, <laughs> it's crazy. What? He, so, and I'm asking for, for those who don't know, Andrew, in order to, I th I'm pretty sure Andrew, in order to intimidate his critics on Twitter, <laughs> will frequently put pictures of him, of him deadlifting massive amounts of weight uh, so that, you know, people, people, you know, uh, maybe tweet a little softer when they're disagreeing <laughs> with him, which I, which I took to heart. But, but yeah, so tell, tell, tell me what you thought about this. Yeah, uh, so, so Half Thor Bjornsson, uh, who yeah. some people may know from popular culture as the mountain on Game of Thrones, uh, is an Icelandic strongman who's uh, won several uh, world titles. And uh, during pandemic times, he took advantage of the lack of, uh, you know, sort of public contest and everything to announce that he was going to break the all-time world deadlift record in strongman competitions. So uh, the previous record was 500 kilograms even, uh, which is just about 1,100 pounds. And uh, Bjornsson uh, just yesterday deadlifted 501 kilograms uh, you know, it was actually televised on ESPN. Like I said, it was a great, great move for him to take advantage. There's no other live sports. So he got the, 
got the spotlight all to himself. And uh, like you said, what, what's amazing to me, you said he doesn't look human, but what's actually amazing to me about him is that he looks sort of like a normally proportioned human, just blown up a lot. You know, like a lot of these, a lot of these like, you know, strongman and other professional athletes, they, they, they look like weirdly proportioned. You know, they almost don't look human. He just looks like a really, really big, well-proportioned human. <laughs> like, how, how, can, you, can you give us a sense of it? How hard is it to do what he did? <laughs> well, I mean, he's the first person to ever do it, so that's probably the, the first place to start. Uh, you know, it is interesting for, for those who have ever uh, lifted weights. You, you know, when you're, when you're trying to do a maximum effort lift and push yourself to lift something you've never done, um, you know, I think you learn, you kind of learn to struggle and you learn to you know, what's like, oh, this is heavy, I can't lift it versus no, I can lift it. I've just got to really grind down and, and get it done. Um, he looked incredible when he lifted the weight. You know, it almost looks like he, he barely struggled with it, which is really, really amazing. But, uh, but yeah, he looked fantastic. <laughs> very, very impressive. Well, sir, I uh, thank you so much for coming on and spending an hour with us. I, I think it was, uh, I was certainly enriched. And, I, and I've been, and again, thank you for I mean, I don't, there's countless physicians and countless uh, people in medicine that have been hugely helped by your free constant <laughs> education on Twitter. So give us, give us your uh, Twitter handle. Uh, it's my, my Twitter handle is AD Althaus, PhD. Awesome. Awesome. So, so that, yeah. So make sure you follow Andrew on, on Twitter and, uh, and next time my, my parents live, I think very close to you. Um, when, when we're not quarantining and stuff yeah. <laughs> uh, at some point when travel is okay. Okay. Again, um, we'll have to definitely meet up in Pittsburgh, Andrew. So thank you again. It was really, really wonderful. All right. Thanks a lot, Anish. You have a great yep. day. Bye now. Thanks for listening to the Akkad and Coca Report. Subscribe for free on iTunes or Stitcher at akkadandcoca.com, where you'll find detailed show notes, our blog, and more. akkadandcoca.com.